Well, good morning again. A concerned husband went to his doctor and he said, Doctor, I, I think my wife is losing her hearing. I just don't know what to do. The doctor's like, well, the first thing we need to do, we need to find out how bad this is. So he said, why don't you do this? When you go home tonight, why don't you stand about 15 feet from her, behind her, and say something to her? And if she replies, okay. If she doesn't, then move five feet closer and say it again. And if she doesn't say anything, then move five feet closer. I'm laughing to myself because I don't hear very well. (laughs) My wife is probably laughing at me too. (laughs) So anyway, the guy says, that's what I'm going to do. So that night, he walks in the kitchen. His wife is in the kitchen, and she's over there chopping some vegetables. And he says, Honey, what's for dinner tonight? No sound, that is. And he steps five feet closer. Honey, what's for dinner tonight? Once again, he hears nothing. So he moves five feet closer. Honey, what's for dinner tonight? Still not a sound comes out. So he moves up right behind her, like one inch behind her, and says, Honey, what's for dinner tonight? And she says, For the fourth time, vegetable stew. (laughs) We think we're in all kinds of relationships, husbands and wives and parents and children, and we're related to authority or we have authority or this or that and the other. And we often think the problem is with the other person. And today, we're going to look at some verses, and it's interesting, whatever situation you find yourself in, I'm going to promise you something. You'll not find anything here this morning that tells you what you should tell the other person to do. This is about each one of us listening to what God wants for us to do and how he wants us to pray. So will you stand with me and we'll turn to Colossians chapter 3, verse 18 to chapter 4, verse 1. And we want to read this together. I'll read it for you. This is uh, the Word of God for us today. We're continuing 40 days of prayer. We come as we're working through Colossians to 3, 18 to 4, 1. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, 
since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. This is the word of God. Will you be seated, please? Now, if you find yourself in one of these categories that we read about today, then I hope you'll listen well to the Word of God and, and all of it. Please listen to all of it today because, uh, as we'll say, these are in pairs and there's just so much to unpack here. And there really is something for all of us who are in any of these kind of relationships. Maybe some of you are not in one of these kind of relationships. Maybe, maybe you're not married or you don't have children or maybe you're retired and, and you, you've, your children have already been raised. So for all of us, what we're doing in the 40 days of prayer, we're trying to learn these principles. And there are many, many principles in the Bible that apply to every single Christian. And then there are some that apply to certain Christians, like, for instance, if wives are certain things here and certain things for husbands and certain things for children. So what do we want to do with that if you don't find yourself in one of those circumstances Let's learn what God says about them so we'll know how to pray for those who are. That's our real focus in this 40 days of prayer, learning how to pray biblically. So, and this is what the biblical prayer based on this passage is. We want to pray that believers will praise God by the way they relate to their families and others. Now, the context of this passage, when we come to chapter 3, verse 18, the setting, this is built on what came before. Paul has already urged believers to live with an eternal perspective. And he has named attitudes that every Christian should exhibit. So after doing those things, now he shares how those values play out in Christian households and relationships. So I would, I would picture it this way. So you start out in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. This, this is the foundation here. There's the eternal perspective. Since you've been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above. That, that's, that's the foundation. And then another foundation piece is all these biblical attitudes. And in our calls to worship this morning, they were read. Uh, you know, clothing yourselves with compassion and humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with each other and, and if anyone has a wrong and forgiving each other and over all of these things, putting on love. So these are foundational truths. So I would, I would if we were drawing a house... The, what's the most important part of the house? It's the foundation, right? So these would be the foundations. And on top of that, you'd build this house that he talks about in 318 to 41. So in other words, you cannot understand 318 to 41 if you don't understand what came before it. You, this is the foundation for everything that he's talking about. So, wives and husbands 
probably won't have any unsolvable problems if they clothe themselves with humility and kindness and gentleness and patience. Tension will be minimized when they bear with each other and when they forgive each other. When they dress themselves in the clothes of love, arguments over roles and rights will become less significant. Being thankful will help us appreciate our children, our parents, our spouses, rather than focusing on their imperfections. So, this passage that we're going to look at today is a challenging one. It's a difficult one. And it is an often misunderstood one, but it's the Word of God. I want to put some qualifications to help us understand some things. First of all, we must understand this against the backdrop of its first century context, which was as Greco-Roman society. In that culture, husbands prided themselves on having obedient wives. Legally, the husband had power over all property and almost all authority over every member of the household in the first century. Now, there were lists in secular society called the household codes that were very similar to this. They listed, here's what husbands should do, or, or here... No, I even, I said it wrong, <laughs> because the secular list only listed what the people who would be in the lesser, and I put that in quotes, the position that didn't have the authority, it, it told them what to do, but it didn't, it didn't speak to both parties. And so, Paul is advancing on his culture. He's living within his culture, but he's advancing on it by he speaks, for instance, to both wives and husbands, both parents and children, both slaves and masters. As Daryl Bach writes, wives are to be treated with love, children with understanding, and slaves as human beings deserving of justice in a time when slaves were not legally regarded as human. So that's the first thing to understand it. We have to understand it first before we apply it, right? Uh, that's the way Bible study works. You study it, you understand it, what it meant to the people to whom it was first written, and then based on that, we apply it to our lives. Number two, Paul was not led to overthrow structures, but to shape hearts after God. Most of us, most of you, I'm sure when you read words like this that mention slaves, you think of slavery and it's, you think of slavery in America and what you know about that and it, it creates quite a bit of angst. And some people try to limit these commands to the first century uh, because the culture was patriarchal, it believed women were inferior, which the Bible does not teach. Women in that culture normally didn't receive any formal education, so they relied on their husbands for much information. And slavery was an institution. It wasn't the same 
experience as the horrible, degrading experience that slavery in America was, 18th and 19th century. But it was an accepted cultural norm. Paul seems to accept the social setting rather than trying to overthrow the institutions. But he radicalizes it. So, for instance, he'll call for mutual submission between husbands and wives, especially when we look at Ephesians, which he also wrote. He will call for fair treatment of bond servants. So, in other words, Paul is trying to transform the norm, not by changing societal institutions, but by changing hearts wherever you live. Number three, the fact that our culture misunderstands or rejects God's ways should not mean that we reject the proper biblical understanding and application of them. There's no doubt that culture recoils against some of the commands here. And there's also little or no doubt in my mind that culture totally misunderstands what it's talking about. But we can't say just because our culture doesn't believe in this, therefore we're not going to believe in it. Otherwise, most of this book we'd have to throw out, right? (laughs) Number four, in these commands, we're called to focus on our own God-giving responsibilities, not the obligations or the failures of the other party. Focus on your spot before God, right? Honey, what's for dinner tonight? (laughs) Remember that one. Number five, we should interpret each pair of what I'm calling the twin admonitions together. In other words, as we interpret this, we're going we're gonna to see what he says to wives and husbands, and we're going to put those together. We're going to see what he says to children and parents and put those together. We're going to see what he says to slaves and masters. And I'll talk when we get to the one, to the third one, I'll talk about slavery then and, and how we might properly try to apply this today. That would probably be about 10.30 tonight, so hang on. So how do we pray for other Christians based on these passages? Well, number one, pray that husbands and wives will please God by the way they love and respect each other. Verse 18 and 19, let's look at it again. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We need to understand this biblical word submit, which means to submit oneself voluntarily. It's used in the New Testament of renouncing your own will for the sake of others and giving precedence to others. Now, New Testament, Old Testament is written in Hebrew. New Testament is written in Greek. Greek has three voices. English has two voices, active and passive, right? Active. I hit the ball. Passive. 
the ball hit me. Greek has an active voice and a passive voice. It could say, I hit the ball or the ball hit me, but it also has a middle voice that we don't have in English. And it's in the middle voice, it's when you do something by yourself or for yourself. This is in the middle voice. When this, this call to, for wives to submit, it's, it's middle voice. In other words, this very same verb, when it's in the active voice, it means to place under or to subordinate. But in the middle voice, like here, it means to submit yourself voluntarily. The call is for you to volunteer to do this. Biblical submission is not limited to wives. Now, I want to do a little exercise to help us grasp this. I'm taking a big chance that so far in Colossians that you've been listening to the sermons. But I, not a real big chance. So Colossians has talked a lot about Jesus Christ so far. Can anybody tell me, raise your hand, tell me something about Jesus that you've learned from Colossians? Anything about Jesus, who he is or what he's done that you've seen in Colossians? Did anybody listen to even one thing? <laughs> raise your hand. Okay? He is the image of the invisible God. That is true. All right? Let's see another hand over here. Yes. He is the firstborn over all creation. He created all things, right? Everything was created through and by him and for him. <laughs> Seated at the right hand of God. L let me ask you this question. Jesus is pretty powerful, right? He is the most powerful being in the universe. He created everything. He's the image of God. I want to tell you something about him. He also submitted to the will of his father. Think about that. If you ever have problems submitting to anybody that you're supposed to submit to, think about Jesus. John chapter 6, the, the command, wives, submit yourselves. Think about what Jesus did. He said, for I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but do the will of him who sent me. And this teaches us a lot about submission. Jesus' example teaches us about submission, that submission does not imply inferiority in personhood in any way. Because Jesus and God the Father are co-equal for all eternity. Jesus didn't become less than God the Father when he walked on the earth, but he did voluntarily submit to the will of God the Father. And this is part of what our culture, they're like, oh, 
I think it's part of why our culture can't even imagine thinking about this because they think you're automatically saying, well, that means men are up here and women are down here. No, not in God's eyes. It's equality of personhood, but it's a voluntary submission to a role that God has given. And biblical submission is not only exampled and modeled in Jesus, it's something for both men and women. (laughs) We don't have time to go to the whole thing, but Paul wrote, Colossians and Ephesians are so similar to each other. Uh, They talk about so many of the same subjects. Um, Both prison epistles Paul wrote from jail. But Colossians expand. Ephesians 5 expands a little bit more on it. In verse 21 of chapter 5, he said, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives some examples and ways that happens. But the foundation is you submit to each other. There's a a submission in marriage of husbands to wives and wives to husbands. Specifically, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. And specifically, husbands, love your wives. Both of those involve basically laying yourself down for the benefit of the other person. Both of them, not one of them. This is not one-sided. It's just different expressions. And I need to make another note here. It is a misunderstanding to think that biblical submission has anything to do with harshness or abuse. Abusive husbands are a problem in our society. But this passage suggests something totally different and should never be used to support that. Any type of abuse, verbal, physical, sexual, any type of abuse. A submissive wife coupled with a loving husband makes a great pair. Don Meredith says, and when we think about definition, He says, submission in marriage means respecting your husband enough to follow his leadership in the home. Jill Briscoe says, submission isn't sitting down on the outside while you're standing up on the inside. What's the motivation here in Colossians? It's as it's fitting in the Lord. It's appropriate in the Lord for Christians. So practically, what does this look like? I mean, I think it really probably looks a little bit different in every marriage, honestly. I don't think it has anything anything to say about who cuts the grass or who washes the dishes or who uh, does the lawn. I don't think it's anything about those types of things. I talked to a lot of women this week that I respect, godly women. I just said, what what does biblical submission look like to you? And I got a lot of great feedback, and it much of it and most of it kept coming back to words like trust, respect, respecting your husband, um, not being a doormat, not failing to have an opinion, not an environment where you don't discuss ideas together or work on solutions together. You value each other's input, but you respect and submit to God-given leadership. That's what biblical submission for a wife is. And as each one of these, I try to think, what's also the opposite? Sometimes if we understand what the opposite of something is, it helps us understand what it is. I think the opposite of submission 
is control or manipulation. I think that's probably an opposite. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So I want to give you three statements. I want you to compare these statements. I love ice cream. I love the Tar Heels. I love my wife. Are those the same thing? You, men, do you know what our problem is? <laughs> I think our major problem is we're selfish. We look at things in terms of how they relate to us, how they make us feel, right? Often, that's what we're talking about. If we say, I love monster trucks, or I love ice cream, we're, we're talking about something that makes us happy. It's how we relate to it. It makes us feel good, and romantic love did that to all of you in the beginning. But it's not sustainable. Romantic love is not sustainable for a lifetime of marriage. This command is not commanding you to feel warm about your wife. Like, oh, I just love it when she walks in the room. Now, if you love it when she walks in the room, that's great. But this isn't urging you to have any sort of kind of feeling. This is urging you to sacrifice for your wife, to care for your wife, to serve your wife, to put her needs first, to lay down yourself for her. Mm, that's a little bit harder, right? The parallel passage in Ephesians 5, again, I'll go back there, it, it spells this out, husbands, Love your wives, how? By having a great warm feeling about, no, just like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. Everyday experience shows that the average man does not hate his body. He cares for it. He pampers it. He puts food in it when it wants food. He lays on the couch when it's tired. He tones it, he exercises it, and God is saying the way that you care for yourself is the way I'm calling you to care for your wife. What is love? It's, it's not just providing financially. It's not just being there bodily. It's not just having said I love you in the past. It's not just re refraining from extramarital affairs Although, it's all those things, but it's more. It's caring for her like you care for yourself. It's 
an act of commitment to your wife and the health of your marriage. It's taking initiative to lead the family spiritually. It's giving and sacrificing. It's accepting your wife for who she is. It's concentrating just not on your career, money, or hobbies, but on the needs of your wife. And it's consulting with her and not just acting independently. So when I think of the opposite, just like when I think of the opposite of submission, biblical submission of the wife, I think of control and manipulation. When I think of the opposite of love, I think of two words, domination on the one hand or indifference on the other. Those are opposite to love. Now, one other note. I got a million notes here. <laughs> but, but one other note. Nowhere in this passage are husbands called to demand submission from their wife. So, guys, if you're in an argument, don't go, well, the Bible says. <laughs> That's not why this is here. Nowhere in this passage are the wives called to demand love from their husbands or they won't get certain treatment. Gentle love is a gift that husbands give to their wives. And voluntary submission is a gift that wives give to their husbands. So if you're married, live by these principles. And as we pray for each other, pray. Do you think about people? Pray that God will be pleased, that God will be lifted up by the way we love each other, the way we respect each other. Number two, pray that fathers or parents, and I'll tell you in a minute why I'm doing that with the and children will please God by the way they encourage and obey. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Children, as you obey your parents, you're not just obeying them. You're obeying the Lord. It pleases the Lord. When your parents ask you to do something or not do something, there's a respect for them, there's an obedience to them, but it goes at a much higher plane. This pleases the Lord. And the opposite of children obeying is rebelling or disobeying. In verse 21, fathers, do not embitter your children or they'll become discouraged. I put fathers, parents, to try to do justice to the facts that the text reads fathers, it doesn't read parents. In the first century, fathers had all of the authority to discipline, so it was natural for Paul to address them. But remember, he's making an advance on his culture because he's not just telling them to discipline their kids, he's, he's also asking them to not embitter their children. But I, I put fathers slash parents mainly as an application-type tool, because while I do believe that fathers have a God-given responsibility to lead their family spiritually, I also believe that fathers and mothers in a Christian home partner together in the massively important role of parenting children. So as we think about application, maybe we can think of it that way. 
Now, what embitters children? I think at least three things embitter children. Lack of time with them, number one. Hypocrisy, number two. And inconsistent, impulsive, erratic discipline, number three. Those elite, there are other things, but at least those three things will embitter children. Not spending time with them. Number two, hypocrisy. And number three, being inconsistent or impulsive or erratic with your discipline. That doesn't mean you don't discipline. In fact, a failure to discipline is a recipe for embitterment long-term. A lack of discipline can breed bitterness, but so can an overly harsh discipline. So fathers and parents need both strong love and consistent discipline. I think that's what keeps children from bitterness. And we're not talking about necessarily bitterness in that very moment. There, there are discipline issues when right in the moment the child does get mad, right? We're not talking about what happens right then. We're talking about for the long term. Because do remember, fathers and parents, you're not called to be your child's best buddy. You're called to parent them in the ways and admonition of the Lord. What's the opposite of embittering? I think it's just encouraging. It's encouraging. Coming along behind. I support you, helping, train. I want to exhort you to do what is right, and I'm there for you. So the second way that we can pray for each other is pray that fathers and parents and the children on both sides, they will please God by the way they encourage each other and the way they obey their parents. So, number three, I'm wording this one this way. Pray that believers will please God in how they relate to or use authority. Verse 22, slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Like I said, this, this word slavery brings a lot of emotions out on us. We should not think about 18th and 19th century slavery in America. I want to try to help us apply it by asking some questions and answering some questions. What was slavery like in that day? When Paul wrote this, what was slavery like? Well, in a word, it was mixed. In general, slaves were treated pretty well. They served not only as unskilled laborers, but they served often as managers and overseers and trained members of various professions like doctors, nurses, teachers, musicians, and skilled artisans. Normally, they were paid for their services, and they eventually could be expected to purchase their freedom if they wanted to. Some chose not to. They, they liked their arrangement. However, slavery was involuntary. That's why I say it's mixed. Earlier in Roman history, slaves had been captured through war or kidnapped from foreign lands. But by the time you get to the New Testament, most people who were in slavery were that way because they had been born to slave households. So perhaps we need a word that's stronger than servant but weaker than slave to capture what was really going on here. There's no comparable institution in, in contemporary Western society. Wayne Grudem says the concept of first century Roman slavery was something like a 
quote, semi-permanent employee without legal or economic freedom. That's what slavery was like in that day. Let me ask another question. Was Paul sanctioning or sanctifying slavery? Was Paul saying the word no? The fact that Paul speaks to slaves and masters does not mean that he's sanctioning that institution. In contrast to contemporary parallels that only spoke to masters as far as how they would handle their slaves, Paul says, hey, if you're a master, treat your slaves fairly. Secularists didn't do that. Now, to reiterate what I said earlier in the qualifications, Paul is not trying to change structures, but he is trying to transform hearts. There are some things that are more important to God than social structures, things like the hearts and souls of people. And Paul, the author here, made some advances by stressing the responsibilities of both and the complete equality of personhood. Let me just give you one verse. I could give you many. I could tell you about Onesimus, the runaway slave, that in Philemon, Paul said, welcome him back as no longer as a slave but as a brother. But Colossians 3.11, here in Christ is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. But Christ, read the last few words out loud with me, is all and is in all. Back in Colossians 3.22, two wrong motives are addressed. Working well when the master is looking and working to gain the master's favor. Notice verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Slaves were probably accustomed to hearing, I've got something for you, meaning punishment. They were not accustomed at all to hearing, you have a reward coming for you. Paul says, if you serve Christ in your situation, you will inherit a reward. And there's another one. It's accountability. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there's no favoritism. Don't go overboard and take advantage of a master who's being patient and forgiving. Wrong will be paid with wrong without favoritism. And then in the next verse, he turns to masters and says, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you have a master in heaven. Now, that's what it was then. (laughs) This is a hard passage to apply today because, thankfully, we don't have slavery in our culture, right? So let me ask third question. Is this question on your outline? Did I put the questions on the outline? Okay. There wasn't room. Is it legitimate to apply this text to employer-employee relationships today? We try to think, what's the closest thing we have to what they're experiencing? And a lot of people just automatically, when they read something like this, they'll go, well, we don't have that anymore, so But I do have an employer that I need 
to please, and maybe I'm the employer and I've got to treat my employees fairly. So the question is, is, is that a legitimate application? And my answer is this, only, only if we do so carefully. <laughs> I want us to talk about levels of application. There's meaning, right? There's meaning. This is what the bi biblical text means, and we always start there. But then we can go to a first-level application. This is the closest thing that we believe the principles are being taught. And I would summarize the first-level application of this part of the passage as view and treat all people the way God does. That's what transcends all cultures. That transcends people who lived in the first century with people who live in the first century. We are to view and treat all people the way God does. Don't dominate. Don't exploit. Don't mistreat others, especially if you seem to be in the, quote, power position or the higher position. So how about the sanitation workers that pick up your garbage? How about the wait staff that brings food to you when you go out to a restaurant? How do you treat them? How do you value them? How do you view them? Do you view them the way God does? Everything matters to God. Verse 23 says, Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not for men. Tomorrow... You're going to go do something. You might go to school. You might work at home. You might be a full-time homemaker and work at home there. You might work for a company out of your home. You might go to an office. You might go to a school. You might marketplace through personal integrity and by modeling a godly life. You know, in, in, as you know, in, in most businesses, everything centers on the bottom line. I mean, that's what it's all about, right? That's what business is. Profits, quotas, sales reports, balance sheets, budgets, competition, productivity, more work and less time with lower costs, and people are often the lowest priority. But I think a second-level application to this would be, well, how does God view people? And how does God view work? We should be reconcilers. We should give credit to others we should also pray for divine appointments, not to steal time from our employers by witnessing for Christ while we should be working, but to seek divine appointments and then in appropriate ways at appropriate times, maybe at a lunch or a coffee or something, sharing the gospel. Pat Morley says that work is not a platform to do ministry. It is ministry. If you're a waiter, every customer is an occasion to demonstrate the character of Jesus Christ. If you're a salesperson, every appointment is holy, and every sale is sacred. If you're a manager, every conflict between two employees presents an opportunity to model the love of Christ. And if you're in a position to determine or help determine compensation, provide justly. That's why we would say, pray that believers will please God by the way they relate to their families and then to others. The others encompasses this authority type of situations that we find ourselves in. And again, maybe not as the first application, but a second level legitimate application nonetheless.
Let me put the passage up one more time. I want to highlight some words. We had to go through it without paying a lot of attention to these, but notice these words as is fitting in the Lord. For this pleases the Lord. With sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord, as working for the Lord, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. You have a master in heaven. Do you see it? It's all about God. It's all about focus on him and trying to please him in everything we do. Now, this passage is written with the assumption that you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you already know him. I just want to take 30 seconds to say it's not written so you can become a Christian. If you do these things, you'll be a Christian. The gospel is that you and I are lost. We're separated from from God by our sin. And Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sin, to bring us into his family. If we turn from our sin in our minds, that's repentance. We have the attitude the same attitude that God has about it, and we say, yes, I'll cling to Jesus, I'll believe in him, I'll trust in him, and I'll depend on him. And then he comes in. And I hope you receive that as good news today. And it will affect all of your earthly relationships. Pray that believers will please God by the way they relate to families and others. Now I realize that some of you, for instance, aren't in any of these situations maybe, and I hope you don't feel out, left out of a message like this, as you could. We're, we at Harvest are trying to be a church family. So if you're away from home or you don't have people in your life in these kinds of relationships, I hope that you experience warmth and fellowship here. And again, if you don't easily fit into one of these categories, pray for those that do. But if you do, and I'm going to close with this, I want to tell you just a short story. Male or female, child or parent, employer, employee, wherever you are, dress yourself in love and serve the people around you like Becky Zerby did. Her, father, or her husband, Roger, was suffering from an early onset of Alzheimer disease. And he wrote a journal entry to her, and he said this, Honey, today fear is taking over. The day is coming when all my memories of this life we share will be gone. In fact, you and the boys will be gone from me. I want to grow old in the warmth of memories. Forgive me for leaving so slowly and painfully. And she was fighting back the tears. And she took out her pen and she wrote these words. My sweet husband, what will happen when we get to the point where you no longer know me? 
I will continue to go on loving you and caring for you. Not because you know me or remember our life, but because I remember you. I will remember the man who proposed to me and told me he loved me. The look on his face when his children were born. The father he was, the way he loved our extended family. I'll recall his love for writing, hiking, and reading. His tears at sentimental movie. The unexpected witty remarks and how he held my hand while he prayed. I cherish the pleasure, obligation, commitment, and opportunity to care for you because I remember you. Our hearts go out to those who deal with those kind of situations. But what a model for the kind of love that we can have for each other.